everyone, welcome to Nope Scene, a weekly podcast that discusses all the latest news in the scene and a retrospective deep dive on the nostalgia that we all grew up with. This week, we have news from the Ghost Inside, volumes, a potential Warp Tour replacement, and a deep dive on how Ask Alexandria became one of the biggest bands in the scene. So let's get started. The Ghost Inside have released a second single from their upcoming self-titled album. This track is called Pressure Point, and it's honestly dope to hear the ghost inside pissed off this is a pretty nasty track coming from a band who historically rarely cusses in their songs there's a couple of f-bombs in the chorus to carry this narrative of kind of what seems to be them calling out media for only focusing on negative stories and there's this ridiculous breakdown at the end that borders on some beatdown riffs we've never really seen the band this mad before and it's refreshing even if it is a formula we've heard many of time from countless other bands they're doing exactly what they need to do with this song and the first single delivering the sound their fans want with a little something different that they know will work i'm at an 8 out of 10 on pressure point uh this album is coming out in a couple weeks on june 5th hit me on twitter or shoot me an email if you want to hear a deep dive about tgi They do have a bit of an interesting trajectory because at one point they were opening for a day to remember and taking steps to kind of follow them a bit. So let me know what you think. In the meantime, moving on to our next story, metalcore band Volumes have released a new song called Pixelate. This comes following the death of their former guitarist Diego just a few months ago. It is the second song to feature the return of their original vocalist, Michael Barr, and you can really feel his early influence on the band on this track. Pixelate is definitely a throwback to Volume's first album, Via, which came out in 2011. Earlier this year, I did an episode of the show with Finn McKinty of the Punk Rock NBA, and Diego had just passed away earlier in that week. We talked about how Via made the Genti bounce core sound accessible for metalcore bands on warp tour before then it was really just for snobby metal heads that were kind of peripheral to the scene so it is cool to hear that sound again but that being said if the song was on via it absolutely would have just been a deep cut that was forgotten it's heavy and nostalgic sure but those are the only two things it has going for it the chug pattern gets old really fast bar and the other vocalist mike terry have one dimensional pretty monotonous screams there's no hook which let's be honest were the biggest attractions to the band in the first place and i know people won't agree with that but that is what kept people coming back to volumes for sure especially when they were getting off the ground i remember tweeting way back in the day that screams were what were holding the band back and they could step to the next level if they just kept the heavy instrumentals ditched the screams and went full cleans but here we are in 2020 back to square one exactly where we started with them and pixelate offers nothing lyrically just these vague themes about an existential crisis you don't need this volumes track and if you're feeling nostalgic just go listen to via it's better anyways i'm at a 5.2 out of 10 moving on so early last week a fan tweeted warp tour founder kevin lyman and said If Kevin Lyman doesn't bring Warped Tour back next summer, there's nothing for us emo kids to live for. To which Kevin decided to respond with, quote, it might just be called something else. Now, as we've seen over the years, there is nothing planned about what goes on Kevin's Twitter or what comes out of his mouth, really. So this could end up being just nothing, or it could actually be Warped Tour Part 2. 
Obviously, there's so much to unpack here, and I could do an entire episode about it, but there are a bunch of reasons why it might not be called Warp Tour, but let's just start with why it wouldn't look like Warp Tour did, even in, even in its final years. The scene just isn't producing big bands anymore, and it hasn't for a long time. It's 10 years later, and we're still talking about Asking Alexandria as one of the biggest bands, because there has been nothing to replace them. Like, despite what people want to believe, modern pop punk wasn't close to being as big as people thought it was. The only band to break the top 10 biggest bands in the scene from that era is Neck Deep. The story so far could have, but their egos are just too big for them to grow. But the point is, the scene stopped producing bands that can draw massive crowds a long time ago. So if a quote-unquote Warp Tour replacement were to happen, it would have to encompass more than just bands from the scene. You'd need your Adata Remembers, sure, but you'd also need your Breaking Benjamins and your Trippy Reds. You'd need a massive budget to make that happen. Trippy Red can make more money just showing up to clubs than doing this. And yes, clubs pay rappers just to show up to them. But the tour would have to be the ultimate intersection of the last few bands in the scene that matter, active rock bands that can draw, and people like Trippy Red who can actually draw a younger crowd. You'd have to double down on that direction. Trippy couldn't pull that young crowd by himself. You'd need Smoke Perp, Lil Skies, B and C listers from the SoundCloud era. You just won't be able to afford Post Malone, Lil Uzi Vert, or Playboy Cardi, etc. It's just not going to happen. Do what you can for that sector, but don't just book the ones that are signed to scene labels. Fucking Lil Lotus and Gucci Highwaters will do absolutely nothing to draw people. No one will watch them. And you can go you can't go low, low, low level SoundCloud either. Like Wikiface Springs Eternal is not your answer here. Get your trippy reds, get your breaking Benjamins, and get your data remembers. That's what a warp tour replacement would have to look like. It's the only way it'd work. Will it actually happen? Who knows? What will concerts even look like in 2021? Nobody has any idea right now. But it's it's definitely interesting to think about. But moving on, before we get to our deep dive this week, a couple quick news. So both Strike Anywhere and Misery Signals returned with new music this week. First off, I will give props to Alt Press and Rock Sound for actually posting about the Misery Signals news. Even though that story should be a given, it did feel good to see. But where the hell are you at, Krang? No posts from them, and none of those three posted about Strike Anywhere. Listen, I know these bands won't get you huge traffic, and that being said, I absolutely got traffic off of Misery Signals Nostalgia when I was at Alt Press. You can 100% milk the first comeback posts and make it worthwhile, as long as your site and socials are healthy. But these stories are more important for documentation at the very least, and for the 30 people on Twitter who wouldn't have known about either of them coming back, it's worth it just as being the only outlets these bands can get in front of even semi-large audiences in 2020. But anyway, Misery Signals released a song called The Tempest, and their new album Ultraviolet will come out August 8th. This is the band's first track with their original vocalist, Jesse Zaraska, in 16 years. It's awesome to see them back and still kicking. Strike Anywhere have signed to Pure Noise Records and will release a new EP called Nightmares of the West on July 17th. They dropped two new songs, Dress the Wounds and Imperium of Waste. You can listen to all three of these songs on the Spotify playlist for the show this week, and I really encourage you to even just give them a once-over. Misery Signals were really melodic metalcore forefathers, 
others and pave the road for a shit ton of other bands in the scene. And Strike Anywhere were honestly our rise against. They took that early, aggressive, rise against sound, threw some hardcore on top, and gave us some dope siren song anthems back in the day. Give these bands your time. At the very least, they've put in the years to deserve it. We have Boston Manor, first week sales. Boston Manor officially sold a measly 1,400 units for their new album Glue over here in the U.S. Obviously, that's incredibly low, and from what I've heard, the industry is considering it an all-around flop. It is what it is. Just too much experimentation is a bad thing when you can't deliver on a single song. For this week's Rock Radio Rundown, and I also have some alt and top 40 ads for this week. So Falling in Reverse's Popular Monster is still at number two. It's down 2.4% in plays. Ask Alexandria's Anti-Socialist, which we'll talk about a little more later, is still at number nine, but it's up 12.5% in plays. That's looking really good for that song. A Day to Remember's Resentment, still at number 14. It's up 4.4%. We'll see if that one moves anymore. It hasn't moved in two to three weeks i think at this point so it'll be interesting to see if they can get any more momentum behind it it's still up in plays but it's just not getting enough for it to keep moving up but we'll keep an eye on it motionless and white's another life down to number 16 this week but still up three percent in plays so that's a little interesting i thought a couple weeks ago it was moving quicker than it is but Looks like it's falling a little bit. We'll have to keep an eye on it. Amity Afflictions, Soak Me in Bleach. It's up to 41. It's just bouncing around in the 40s. And same with Fifth for Kings, Breaking the Mirror. That's at number 43 this week. Now, Alternative Radio. 21 Pilots, Level of Concern is actually the number one song now on Alt Radio. They had numerous number ones on their previous album, but they didn't get any top 40 play. And this song is actually at number 24 on top 40 right now, which is very, very interesting. It's actually down 0.7% in plays from where it was last week at number 21. So we'll see if they can actually break the top 20 and get any more momentum behind it. Very interesting. But back to alt radio. All Time Lows Monsters featuring Black Bear has officially been added to alternative radio rotation. It's at number 45, and it's up a shit ton of streams from the week before where it was outside the top 50. So I wasn't able to see it because I only get the top 50. But to put these kind of in perspective, Rock Radio is basically the bottom barrel of of radio rotation. At the end of the week, the number one song on Rock Radio gets about 1,200 plays. If you get number one on top 40, you're looking at 20,000 plays. Like, there is such a massive difference in between those two. And for alt radio, you're probably looking at between 2,500 and 3,000 plays. So that kind of puts into perspective how little rock radio matters compares to, compared to everything else when you put it next to one another. But we'll keep an eye on all of that, and we'll give the next rundown next week. So moving on to our deep dive this week about Ask Alexandria and how they became one of the biggest bands in the scene. Earlier this year on our episode of the current top 10 biggest bands in the scene, they ranked at number 6. So today we're going to unpack how they got there. As you'll continue to see with these kinds of dives, it's almost always going to be some kind of combination of three things. Delivering on the music, image, and of course, drama. All of which combined create what we call a band's narrative. 
Every band has a narrative, and it's important to capitalize in the right areas at the right times to create yours. And Acne have been pros at them all throughout the course of their career. Are they still? Let's find out. So technically, Asking actually started before Stand Up and Scream. Ben Bruce used the name for a group with a completely different lineup before he added the members that we know today. That first band released an EP called Tomorrow Hope Goodbye and a full length called The Irony of Your Perfection. You can find all that shit on YouTube. I personally love discovering like old demos and early versions of bands, so if you're into that too, give them a listen. They're definitely not anything special, but it's semi-coherent metalcore. But Asking Story really does start with Stand Up and Scream, and I tweeted last week that Attack Attack walked so Asking Alexandria could run, and it's so true. Personally, I like Someday Came Suddenly more than Stand Up and Scream, but Stand Up is a more refined, fully realized version of Someday. The hooks are more tasteful, cleans aren't drowned in auto-tune, the electronic interludes actually feel somewhat natural, the riffs are more concise, and almost too concise, honestly, at some points, robot-like, and that really influenced the generic structure this sound became a few years later. But Danny's layered screams, you hear a ton of highs and lows layered on top of one another at the same time. It creates this added dynamic to specific parts of songs because in the next measure you'll only hear a high or a low and then they both come back when shit's supposed to hit hard. This recording technique became so common in the scene's modern, modern metalcore era after this album, and obviously we can thank Joey Sturgis for all of it, really. This record came out over 10 years ago now, and the final episode, Let's Change the Channel, Not the American Average, and A Prophecy continue to be fan favorites to this day. The band's look at this time was full scene. By now, you've most likely come across the memes of Danny Warsnop on this cycle versus the ones of him on his first country album. Their hair was so straight, it looked like you could cut shit with it. Their pants were tight as hell. Everything was in a very dark aesthetic, which was different than Attack Attacks for Someday Came Suddenly. Even to this day, asking always wear black or dark wash skinnies, almost always with holes in them and darker leaning tops. None of them ever bleached their hair or purposefully went blonde. They've always been dark and brooding, and it all started with Stand Up and Scream. Now, this cycle was actually fairly void of any significant public drama. What carried this cycle was literally just the music and image. The way Asking executed both during this time was so attractive in the scene. They were taking over Hot Topic shelves with shirts and CDs and everyone wanted to be part of the party. Obviously, the band didn't do anything crazy first week since the only momentum they had leading up to their release was just some demos on MySpace and Pure Volume. I can't even find a total, but they charted at 170 on the top 200, so they did break in, but it was very, very small. But what's most interesting is that Asking didn't start building momentum in the UK. They didn't start there and then come over here. In an interview with Loudwire in 2012, Ben Bruce said that he actually lied to the whole band to get them to move over here in 2000. 2007. He had told them that they had a label, management, tours, and studio time all set up. There wasn't anything set up. He just knew that he had to get them over here. Once they got here, they were basically homeless. Danny and Ben's parents pulled 
together enough money for them to get a shitty RV, and they literally lived in a Walmart parking lot for a few months. That's how Asking Alexandria started, and why they didn't have to play catch-up on crossing over into the U.S., like I talked about Enter Shikari having to do a few weeks back on the show. Asking are from overseas, but they started here, so they didn't have to play any type of different game to build momentum here. It Honestly, they had to build momentum overseas secondary, which is really, really interesting. Now, moving into the Reckless and Relentless cycle, there's so much to unpack here between the music, the image, and the drama that this album could honestly be its own episode. Right before they dropped this album, they dropped an EP called Life Gone Wild, and that really led into what Reckless and Relentless became. So this Life Gone Wild EP not only recreated Skid Row's artwork for their self-titled cover, but had covers of both Youth Gone Wild and 18 in Life. And I remember when Asking dropped those covers and just watching the scene kids who had never even heard the word Skid Row before lose their shit. What the fuck is happening to Asking? The shit sucks. Bring back Stand Up and Scream Asking. And yeah, like people have literally been saying that for a decade now. But this was so indicative of the mental shift Asking were going through at the time. In their heads, they were evolving from scene kids into rock stars, and for better or worse, they were actually living it. Everyone always wanted to call Escape the Fate the motley crew of the scene during their first two album cycles, and although nobody in Asking ever went to jail in the spectacular fashion that Ronnie Radke did, Asking lived the sex, drugs, rock and roll lifestyle more than any other band in the scene. All of that came to the forefront on Reckless and Relentless. This album is hands down the best metalcore LB from that Joey Sturgis, Risecore, Genericore, whatever you want to call it, era of the late 2000s and early 2010s. The way they loosened up the roboticness of that modern metalcore sound, but still made it sound tight as hell, and still incorporated electronicore in not only tasteful moments, but innovative ways as well. It made an actual rock and roll record on top of everything. It's something that no other band did and if they tried they never did it as well as this album like the orchestral arrangements and how massive the mix sounds there are moments that are so intense on this record they sound like the end of the world and i know they said their third album from death to destiny was their arena sounding album but reckless was arena metalcore at its finest and there's such a sense of panic here you can actually feel it internally they were self-destructing danny was on his way off the deep end and nobody else in the band could stop him his self-transparency on this album honestly rivals that of ronnie radke's on dying is your latest fashion on reckless's title track Danny screams, through sin and self-destruction, I stumble home, never alone, my only home is the bottom of the bottle and a rolled up bill and I'm ready to go, and I live the same day in and out and I don't care how long I last. Everything came to a head fairly quickly on the album release tour for this cycle during a show in Seattle where Danny could barely stand, let alone speak. He was completely incoherent to the point where the crowd started chanting, drunk piece of shit, and the rest of the band walked off stage. You can find plenty of footage from that night on YouTube, and of course it made headlines everywhere. After this, Danny actually released a statement apologizing to fans and saying he was quitting drugs and drinking for good. It was also on this cycle that the band released a short film, kind of, of sorts, called Through Sin and Self-Destruction. When they announced it, they described it as a, quote, controversial, uncensored look into the real lives of a new era of rock stars for today's generation. 
it basically was just the combination of three music videos off the album showing exactly what they said it would. When I went back and watched it for this episode, it showed me something that I completely forgot about. When Sumerian dropped this short film, they prefaced it with a message saying they were going to be making a full-fledged, full-length film about the story of Asking Alexandria. Obviously, that never came out, but I would bet money that turned into what American Satan became. It's just an interesting sidebar that showed how much the band was actually leaning into their narrative of sex, drugs, rock and roll. But before we get into the next chapter, let's talk reckless sales really quick. The album sold 31,000 units first week, jumping them from 170 on Stand Up and Scream on the top 200 to number 9. I mean, that puts into perspective how momentous Stand Up and Scream was, and then they delivered tenfold on Reckless. This was the exact opposite of a sophomore slump. But after this came From Death to Destiny, which is historically considered the band's sellout album. Ben literally said in interviews leading up to this that they were going to be releasing songs intended for rock radio. The problem with this album is that the songs were just a lower caliber than what they wrote on Reckless. In an attempt to be more accessible, they dumbed down their formula too much. And the production on this album did them absolutely no favors. There's this low-end air about these songs. It's kind of industrial. It's kind of robotic. The songs don't pop. Even the brightest moments feel a bit cloudy. That being said, the reckless momentum carried them to a massive first week of 41,000 units and a top five album on the top 200. This was just unreal because before this album, they hadn't gotten any radio play. It was purely momentum from the scene and their name being kept in headlines that built their narrative. It really shows how healthy the scene still was in 2013. Despite From Death to Destiny not delivering on the caliber of what the band had brought before, it ultimately accomplished what they set out to do. The Death of Me, Break Down the Walls, and Moving On all charted on rock radio. And Moving On, which is by far the best song from this album, is actually still the band's highest charting single on rock radio at number 6. The band toured, toured, and toured on this record. They got headlines for everything from the controversial cover art to the rising rumors that tension was building between Danny and the rest of the band. All of that came to a head when Danny announced that he was leaving the band in January of 2015. I'll never forget when this news broke. Uh, Property of Zach had it up first because Zach Cirillo was just a fucking robot back in the day, but I had it up on All Press a couple minutes later, and it was just wild to see the response from this story. It was so massive. Danny wanted to take asking in a different direction musically than the rest of the band wanted to go, so he was going to go focus on his new band, We Are Harlot, while asking would continue with a new vocalist. Even though everyone wanted Danny and Asking, the hype for We Are Harlot was so much less than the new vocalist of Asking. So it wasn't a huge prize when Dennis Stoff announced he would be Danny's replacement. Both of his previous bands, Make Me Famous and Down and Dirty, were obvious ripoffs or at the very least interpretations of early Asking Alexandria. Dennis had even uploaded vocal covers of Stand Up and Scream songs to YouTube before he was ever in a band. So Danny went off did his own thing, and asking release the black with Dennis. The problem with Dennis is that although he's a good vocalist, he makes everything sound the same. This album easily could have been the down and dirty album that he was supposed to release before he left that shit show. The Black felt like a diet, sterilized version of Bring Me the Horizon Semp Eternal, which was already three years old at this point. 
It ultimately dropped from the 41,000 the band did with From Death to Destiny to 28,000 first week. At this point, it was obvious the band were just going to keep dropping. Although they had radio success, they weren't keeping their core fan base. There were people that were finally sick of their shit, and they were jumping ship when they didn't deliver a stellar album separated from Danny. So now, cue the Danny and Ben beef. I remember running all the Danny versus Ben headlines at All Press. At one point, Danny had said an offhand comment in an interview that what asking we're doing wasn't genuine. And then Ben replied with, you're from England and left rock to play country. What's genuine about that? Asking only had two singles chart on rock radio from this album. I won't give him and here I am. And neither broke the top 10. The issue with the black is that asking weren't going to get any bigger with Dennis as their front man. The Black was the biggest it was going to be and it was all downhill from there. And Ben knew it. So he squashed the beef and brought Danny back. Then all this shit about Dennis being a dirtbag came out. Apparently he agreed to do some guest vocals for bands but just took the money and never gave any features. I mean, there's a free listicle ideal. The Times shitty scene bros ripped off local bands by stealing their money for guest features and never did the feature. But anyway, so Danny and Ask Alexandria are back together, and they released their self-titled album. It dropped in first week sales, and I honestly thought the band was done at this point. Like, they were just going to keep dropping down, and they were going to keep getting smaller and smaller. It did 22,000 first week. My buddy Brian Storm at Rockfeed, and a former guest on the show for a couple episodes, reported the number and called it disappointing because it was. And Ben Bruce called him out for it. Much like every scene bro does when someone calls them out on declining numbers, he got super defensive and said they quote, Quote, knew they would chart lower on billboard charts than if they waited to release in January due to Christmas sales being dominated by pop slash rap. It literally made no sense. Why would you purposefully release an album at a time when it would be guaranteed to sell less? Whatever. He actually deleted the tweets because hopefully he realized how much of a dumbass he sounded like. But really what saved this cycle was the radio success. Into the Fire peaked at number 13, Alone in a Room peaked at number 7, and Vultures peaked at number 9. They played a shit ton of massive rock festivals and really broke themselves away from their scene association. They actually started realizing their goal of just becoming a rock band. Now, they carried that momentum into today, where they're just days out of releasing their sixth album, Like a House on Fire. The problems with this album are that, for the most part, they released the wrong singles. Like I've been documenting over the last couple weeks, Antisocial just broke the top 10 on rock radio, but The Violence, Down to Hell, and House on Fire that they also released as singles are just bad songs. And I'm not talking like a dumbass, because they're rock songs, they're bad, the math is actually wrong on these songs, and also a majority of the album, which is what concerns me the most. There are a handful of good moments. It's Not Me, It's You is a great rock radio post-hardcore song. Give You Up is close to some sort of Imagine Dragons interpretation that could be something with the right push, and holy shit, it has an incredible pre-chorus. I Don't Need You, which features pop singer Grace Grundy, is a great ballad addition to Asking Catalog, but really the rest of the album misses, and it misses hard. They sound like a shitty bar band ripoff of Jet most of the time, which is really concerning. 
The band doesn't have any drama to carry them anymore. They've grown up, and Ben is pushing that narrative. One thing I want to mention, he said in an interview with Kerrang, and I want to tell it to everyone who doesn't understand how first week sales work or how they're still indicative of a band's momentum, especially in our world. Speaking of how the coronavirus affected their decisions and on this album and moving forward, he said, quote, the distributors wanted to delay release. Manufacturer physical copies is at minimal capacity. Stores are closed. They knew that would have a huge impact on our first week sales and would impact how we charted on billboard those numbers do mean a lot in this industry people don't care why they just see that they're down and that means that they can offer you less money for tours and festivals it's a whole stupid game and then he goes on to say some bullshit about how it doesn't matter because he's living his dream and listen if that's what you want that's great nobody can take that away from you but what will be taken away from you is the future success of your band if you don't make the right business decisions so here's what he said Quote, then I realized that didn't matter to me. I flash back to being a kid, desperate to be signed, my mom and I spending weeks and months printing off CDs and sending them out to anyone we could imagine. I just wanted to share my music with people and hope they might feel the same way I did. Nowadays on Spotify alone, Asking Alexandria has 2.6 million individual monthly listeners. If someone had told me that when I was a kid, I'd have shit my pants and cried. It didn't sit right with me that that wouldn't be a big enough audience for us now. The love for this music and the reason I do this hasn't changed. Our fans are out there. They're already going through a really shit time, and I didn't want to take this away from them too. This music might help someone. It might get them through. Here's the thing, Ben. 2.6 million monthly listeners ain't shit. It doesn't even put you in the top five bands of the scene who have yet to break out. I tweeted out the top five from the Note to Scene account last week. And if you want to talk about actual competitive streaming numbers, you're leagues away from them. Rock and metal music in general has a problem. It starts with thinking that these type of types of numbers will get you where you want to go. It has this false support system that says that these numbers are okay and they're good. They're not. They are so far away from what they should be, and it's why rock is at the bottom. In a time in your career where asking have to rely on delivering the music because the image and the drama have faded away, I don't think they released an album that did that. But we'll see. I mean, Anti-Socialist, like I've said, is inside the top 10 and climbing, and right now it looks like it has enough momentum to become their highest charting single ever. So I could be completely wrong here. But based on what I've seen historically in our world and beyond in the industry, this album isn't going to get them where they want to go. And I'm expecting a drop in first week sales from Self-Titled. I'm predicting 15,000. I'll be updating their forecast throughout the week on the Note to Scene Twitter, and That wraps up the story of how Asking Alexandria became one of the scene's biggest bands. Will they stay there or fade away? Stay tuned to find out. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions for the show, email me at notetoscene at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Note to Scene on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you enjoy the show, please drop a review on iTunes. I'd appreciate it very much. Until next week, stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon.